I'm Kendra Tomolato, here with Mei Zhang, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China Travel. Each week, we'll be heading to a new place in China to share our top local tips and tricks, highlighting our favorite food, hotels, and experiences, as well as sharing resources. We'll be recording these episodes live on Clubhouse every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And after the podcast portion, we'll open up for live Q&A and story sharing. So if you'd like to join live, please follow Mei at Zhang Meijia or me at Kaytan Bellotto. If you're joining or catching up on past episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And lastly, if you're interested in traveling China with us or attending any of our other virtual events, please visit our website at wildchina.com. For this episode, we are talking with Jeff Fuchs, a longtime Wild China friend and a globally recognized expert on tea. Jeff is also a pioneering explorer, being the first Westerner to walk a 6,000-some miles of the ancient tea horse road through the Himalayas. Today, we'll be talking with him about tea in China. Just to kick it off, I'll say a little bit. Jeff is among all the friends I know, the one who's most, most knowledgeable about two things. One is tea. The other one connects directly to my heart. It's the tea and horse caravan route. He is the only person I know who physically measured the entire route by foot. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more. And Jeff has these stunning photographs from his tea journeys around the world. And a lot of those on the dreamy Tibetan plateaus are absolutely beautiful. Make sure you follow Jeff Fuchs on Instagram. And so let's just dive straight in. Yeah, maybe Jeff, I'll start with you. Maybe you can start off by sharing a little bit of your backstory. How did you first get interested in tea? Well, two things. I think growing up in an eccentric household with a Hungarian father who was inundating the kitchen with all things Asian and tea was flowing early on in life. That was, I think, pretty much set things up. Another important link ended up being Taiwan. I moved to Taiwan at the end of the 1990s. I had to study Mandarin in order to learn more about tea from a master of making tea in Taiwan. When my Mandarin was a little bit better, he finally decided, okay, well, you're ready. Over the course of months, I would spend sitting time with him, not simply talking about tea, but talking about the culture that surrounds tea, eating with tea. It wasn't so tea-centric. It was more tea seemed to infuse everything in his life. At some point, he just recommended, you know, I've taught you Gong Fu Cha, I've taught you all Gao Shan Oolong, all about the Oolongs, and we've talked about this. But now you have to go to the origin point. And I thought, okay, so this is somewhere in Taiwan. And he said, no, you have to go to Yinnan province in southwest China. He said, if you want to understand tea at the root, literally and figuratively at the root, you should go there because they treat tea less formally and more as a family member. So that led to me visiting Yunnan, but it also led to a, a hook going very quickly into the, the skin and holding me there. And I ended up spending a decade, as you mentioned, in Zhongdian, in Yunnan specifically, as close to the source as I could. And of course, the Tea Horse Road is as tea-centric a journey as you can take. And I'd never heard of anything about it until I actually arrived in Yunnan. And I thought, okay. Mountains and tea, this needs to happen. You know what struck me? They treat tea not just as an item, but as a member of the family. Some of our listeners already know that I grew up in Yunnan. It sounds so comforting. I've never said it in Chinese. The concept is very familiar and comforting to me. 
Tell me what that revealed itself to you when you got to Yunnan. Well, I think you and I have actually spoken about the concept of Yunnan being a bit special because of the food culture, because of the informality of the day-to-day living, of eating, drinking, socializing in Yunnan. For, for me, when I went, it was, as Mr. Lee, uh, my old mentor, said, it, it, tea, all of a sudden you took away all the formalities, all of the instruments, all of the vessels, all of the ornate, almost mystification of tea, and you just plunged right into the soil. Tea's everywhere all the time. Still is used, I'm, I'm happy to see. It was used to solve problems. It was used to keep people awake. It was used to feed children. It was used to cure. It was used for everything, and it didn't matter who was serving. It didn't matter who would be the maker of the clay vessel. And I have to point out that I collect clay vessels. I've got too many clay vessels. I love the formality of the clay vessels. In Yunnan, tea was about the leaf. It was about time. I think those two concepts, time and tea, seem to go together in Yunnan more perfectly, for me at least, in my perspective, than any other place I'd been to in my days of running around seeking out cups. <laughs> you put it beautifully, because as I was remembering, the word informality contradicts a lot of Instagram images of tea ceremonies. People associate that with the Japanese matcha or the Eastern region tea ceremonies like your clay vessels. But in Yunnan, the way we grew up, you drink tea out of anything, of a ceramic cup or a glass or a bowl, even with a chip on the side, it's okay. It's sort of the cheapest, thirst-crunching companion of hot laborers after a day of working, planting rice in the field. But yet it's also served in these, you know, receiving halls of the dignitaries in huge mansions. But I'm more familiar with um, the worker style, just tea leaves in any vessel, pour hot water over it, leave an inch empty at the top and serve. And I think there's something reassuring about that. I think it's more accessible that way. It's certainly It's kind of an odd-shaped loop where you learn the formalities. Many people learn the formalities and and get hooked by the formalities and the tools and the numbers and the degree temperature. And I did the same. The amount of leaves have to be rigidly controlled. And then after that, you go back to the origin and realize that the origin, the informality of it, the human centrism of it, it's about who grew the tea. It's not about how much it costs per 50 grams. Absolutely. It has changed. I think both you and I have this fascination with the people's relationship with tea, the one who dry them, the one who weigh them and process them or brew them. Nowadays, tea is more measured by the price tag. Let's take a step back. Give us a sense of how different are Chinese teas. And then when we say Chinese teas, again, there are so many subcategories of teas. It's almost like We talk about Chinese food being very different from Western food. And then what is Chinese food? There isn't a single Chinese food. Divide that into subcategories. You are very good at sort of simplifying this to a level that is easy to digest. There's something that happened seven or eight years ago. I was in Darjeeling. And this kind of sums up how to underestimate the culture of tea, particularly in China and how it's spread. Most people can pick up a book and read about the history of the export and the manipulation of the tea trade. 
by Westerners. We can all read about that. We can read about Fujian, the schooners, which took the Minahua, the, the Fujian way of saying tea, tei, sort of extended it to Europe. One of the best stories for me a few years ago being in Darjeeling was at a particular estate that produces some of the best Darjeeling, if I can call it. And of course, best tea, what is it? Well, the palate decides what a best tea is. If it's made well, the raw materials are good, it's served correctly, la la la. What's interesting is this one tea in particular, I enjoyed it, and I got into the sort of the storytelling component afterwards with the guy who was sort of the, the guru of the tea estate, and he said, these are his words, it was this simple, these are old China. These are old China, what does that mean? And he says, the reason for this tea tasting as exquisite as it does is because these are original China cultivars. These are non-cloned, non-hybridized. These are original old bush trees that were stolen, and he said stolen, from China hundred and some years ago. And so we sat down, and all of a sudden, tea had another beautiful component to it, a new dimension. It wasn't simply the teas that I've consumed as a kid, the Western reference point to Asia, to China. Here we had India with its own huge tea history, a shorter one than China, but it has a reference point to China and these old original plants that were stolen. The fact that he used the word stolen as well, because in Darjeeling right now, they produce fantastic teas many of which, in fact, the majority of which are clones or hybrids. The cultivars have been genetically modified to create hardier stock, more fragrant stock. But here we had something original from China that traveled over some smuggler's route through the sub-Himalayas to Darjeeling. I just thought this is a great new perspective of seeing it. So you think those cultivars went over to India over land through the Himalayas rather than I was imagining from Fujian and in a pot boarded a ship and got to Darjeeling. Well, I think some of them did. For some interesting spy reading, there's Robert Fortune, an old Scottish botanist who was wandering China in a time where few foreigners could. And he was collecting seeds. He was collecting cuttings and trying to understand specifically how to get tea and the tea production methods out of China so that some of those skill sets and some of those original cultivars could be grown in India. So there was deliberate attempts to steal, of course, and that's the great little tale. But I also think that there was a lot from the old traders in relation to the Tea Horse Road, the Chamagudao. There were also a lot of smuggler routes through Myanmar, through present-day Burma from Yunnan province. Some of the cultivars in Darjeeling are Yunnan Sichuan cultivars. There's also cultivars from the southeast that are found, I think, in Anhui and in Fujian province. So I'm not sure, I'm not a, an expert in the cultivars and their origin points, but here we are with other Asian, very tea-centric nations, sort of a little tip of the hat to some of the history of China and some of the indirect and direct influence that tea had on the globe. Fascinating. I love the sort of stories or the origin stories of how plants, tea being one of them, or rhododendron, camellia, magnolia, traveled the world. Me being from Yunnan, it's almost like every plant I see somehow will find a way to tie back to Yunnan. 
So going back to my story, China being such an important tea area, when you talk about Chinese tea, what are the regions you think of? I'm going to limit myself here and just say I'm obsessed with two. Yunnan, obviously, for me, it's almost the heart valve of all tea for me, and not just in China. And also, if we just straddle and head directly east into Fujian, Weishan specifically, Huangshan has beautiful teas, and I know Hangzhou with its Longjing's bake and the real. For me, Weishan is also、uh, another organ, I guess, of the origin of teas. There's so much lineage, and I think Yunnan kind of represents the art of good pu'er or big leaf tea production. Is that the masters don't alter the tea from the raw material, from the maocha to the dried tea that we know, the cakes that we know. So the art in Yunnan is a simpler one. It's restraint. Don't overpan fry. You don't overmanipulate the production phases. There are very few phases to produce a beautiful, wildly expensive pu'er from ancient trees. Whereas in Weishan. You have all this history. You have the histrionics. You have the cultural. It's almost like the tea infuses every single phase of life in Weishan as well, or in Fujian, specifically with the yanchas, the stone teas, the dahongpao, shahongpao, rugwei, tielohan. With those teas, you have sort of the pinnacle of real artistry, where it is to manipulate, where it is to. Charcoal roast for a certain amount of time and know when the temperature is right. So for me, these two kind of juxtapose each other beautifully. And just from a palate perspective, if I was to go for two teas again and again and again and again for the rest of the days that I'm upright, those would be the hot spots for me. For a non-tea expert, the process sounds very similar, though. The harvesting, picking the leaves in I don't know March, April, May. Stretches around that time, right? And then there's the drying, roasting. The process for me, as a non-expert, completely, it sounds similar. So I'd love to hear you explain a little more. Help me understand. Maybe just to give an example, one of my mentors, another mentor, dozens of them, and they're all formidable individuals who should probably have their own podcast. Mr. Gao, Master Gao, Gao Shufu. He used to explain the whole tea production could be summed up. In three stages, and he simplified everything. And I think it's from him that I've learned to really appreciate people who can simplify. He used to say that good teas should have three components: you should be close to the source, you should have good harvesting raw materials. You know that whole source origin point that's vital. You need to have that. You need to have good soils, good harvesting techniques. The next step is the step that he said was the forgotten stage. And I always go back to this because it's the stage I rarely thought about. It's the application of heat, whatever that source of heat is, whether it's pan frying, whether it's steaming, whether it's roasting, whether it's fire blasting. That application of heat, which happens to tea throughout Zhongguo, throughout China, that is one of the underrated. Aspects of tea production that needs mastery as well. Too hot a heat on too delicate a bud, you've annihilated the potential. So you need to understand heat, which he did. The third aspect that he reminded me of or emphasized was he says, "Don't get caught up so much in all of the 
how long is it roasted for at what temperature. He said what's really important is that tea is stored properly because you could take the most brilliant piece of gorgeous tea, no matter what it is, green, oolong, semi-fermented, fully fermented tea. But if you do not store it somewhere where it's not going to be abused by scents or taints or humidity, if you don't consider or emphasize these three stages of tea production, no matter where you are, then you are potentially going to misunderstand tea or you won't actually enjoy or understand when you do have a good brew. Fundamentally, tea goes through this. It has to be harvested. It has to have an application of heat of some sort. And it has to be stored and readied or bagged in a sort of semi-pure environment. And just a little anecdote at the end. He says, always beware of teas that have been re-roasted, re-smoked, flavored. I knew the answer why, but I had to ask him why. And he says, because all of these elements are the easiest way to hide an inferior tea or a tea that's off or an old tea that's gone flat or a sour tea. For instance, one of the only flavor components you do not want in a tea is sour because that means that the withering process has not been done carefully. A little astringency, a little bit of bitterness in the West, we have different reference point for bitterness, but a little astringency isn't a bad thing, but sourness is the one component. So I'm quoting Master Gao on this sort of way to look at Chinese tea, but I think it's a beautiful way to look at it. As you were speaking of these three, I started thinking about the tea and horse caravan road. There's sort of taking these elements and stretch it out on a long geography over very different terrain. And that's one of the aspects I think I've become more obsessed with as time goes by. I mean, along the T-Horse Road, you have a journey, T-Horse Roads, these pathways, all of them meandering through mountains, all of them having a lot of commodities involved in this whole trade, not only tea, you had resin, you had salt. But what's interesting about tea is tea went through this sort of accidental composting or fermentation on some of these long journeys that took months from the origin points in Sichuan province, western Sichuan, Mengshan, Mengdingshan, and of course from the old origin points in Sichuan Bana, in the very south of Yunnan. Along these corridors, tea would start often being just compressed into bamboo cylinders. On the course of these journeys, it would take four or five months going up and down in altitude up against the body, the heat of yak, the heat of mules, the heat of horses, in some cases, even the heat of sheep. So as tea was traveling all the way into, you know, onto the top of the world and then down into India, Nepal, and through into Pakistan, you, you had this composting taking place, this almost accelerated aging process because of the heat, the altitude, the dry, all these conditions which were so close to the leaves. A lot of teas that a lot of the nomads were consuming, we would consider to be not even tea. It, it fermented to such a point, it was almost pungent and enamel testing in its strength. And I mean, a lot of nomads actually have come to appreciate and love those extremely powerful and semi-off teas for their churned butter and salt stewed teas that they so love. And you know, back to your point about people and the relationships to tea, what's amazing about tea is that 
the people connected to this leaf, no matter where they are, they could be in an inner city in India, they could be in a small rural town in China or somewhere in the Midwest of the US, there is an attachment and an affiliation that I've never encountered with other beverages. I love sake. I know a lot of people who love sake, but I have never seen such an adherence and a commitment to the concept of taking time to take tea. I don't know. There's, I've often thought that there's a very communal panacea type effect that tea has, whether it be, in a, again, in a very rural, low-income house or in a sort of a posh little place. You'll still find this an adherence to some sort of philosophy of not necessarily just the community, but to the moment that you take. It's so true. As you were saying, I remember going home and visit my aunt. It's almost like every house, every house has this enormous wooden tea table. You know what I'm talking about, right? It has like ready drilled holes for drainage and a small faucet for fresh spring water to be piped in. Every household, no matter what you are doing, when you show up, they say, oh, come for tea. They drop everything and just sit down at the tea table and start heating up water. And you go through, how are you doing? How's the family? This and that. And you say, try this tea and try that tea. An hour or two easily goes by. It's just taking the time to catch up over something. Well, now it's very fancy and expensive, and they make it an annual trip to drive down to Xixuanbanha and package their own tea cakes every spring. I could ask you a thousand more questions. Maybe we'll finish with something a little bit practical that people can apply. Let's say if you're living in California or over here in New York, what are the sources, brands of tea that you would recommend that people can start taking? There's a couple of places, I believe in San Francisco, you have Teals. They do stupendously good teas. They've been doing it for a long time. They're really committed to the source, the story. They pay great credit to the growers, to the production people. In New York, there's a little gorgeous shop called Tea Drunk. She's also quite epic, very knowledgeable, very honest, very straightforward. And her tea shop is just, I don't know, walking in there is a bit of a, a head trip for me. I love it. On the northwest, you've got Crimson Lotus. Crimson Lotus, they do a lot of very good pu'er. Again, I think a lot of integrity with the way they approach the storytelling, the narrative. They pay credit along the way to getting the teas to the drinkers. Yeah, I think the source is really important. I'm the co-founder of Jalam Teas, and we're rebooting the whole company, which is exciting. We only do pu'er. Spell it for us. Yep, Jalam, J-A-L-A-M-T's, one word. Which means? Ja in Tibetan means tea, and lam means road, L-A-M. So there's a little homage to Atama Gudao. And we do a decent job. We do a very good job with the storytelling. But I think with anything, it's the source. Where you get your teas from, where you get your groceries from, if you trust the source... If they have some authentic integrity, some real integrity, transparency, I think you're going to get something that at least begins a journey or takes you on a journey. There are other ways to enjoy teas as well. There's a beautiful book written by Lisa C. called The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. Good fortune of interviewing her as well. And she writes about Puar. It's a fictionalized story around the tea cake. 
it takes me right home. So that's one way to enjoy the tea. Or the best way is to come back and join Jeff to explore the Tian Horse Caravan Road in person with Wild China. Thank you so much, Jeff. This is delightful. It just—I don't know—it gives me this most peaceful forty minutes to think about the beautiful cultures that connect us together: the tea drinking, and the people who are growing tea, picking tea, brewing tea at home. And I hope we'll regather in that region soon. Oh, pleasure! It's a great little journey we took. Wild China Travel presents the China Travel Podcast, hosted by me, Kendra Tombolato, and Wild China founder Mei Zhang. In this series, we'll be traveling to a different place in China each week to share our local tips and expert travel advice. Catch our weekly podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.